Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to this LSE Festival online session, How to Negotiate, the Essentials You Need to Know to Manage People and Change in Business Today. This session is part of our series, Skills for a Fast-Changing World, hosted by LSE Online. I'm Christina, I'm a Senior Manager at LSE Online, where we offer online courses for lifelong learning and professional development, accessible from wherever you are in the world. Today's session is part of the ongoing LSE Festival, People in Change, which is taking place all week and until Saturday, the 17th of June. We are delighted to have you here. Please note that this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a video or podcast subject to no technical difficulties. While we wait one more minute for everyone to arrive, I would love to hear where in the world you are joining us from. Drop us a note in the chat. Great to see so many of you here. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Karen King and Dr. Aurelie Nob nielsen for another LSE Festival online skills session. Karen King is a lecturer and fellow in the Department of Management at the LSE. Her research and lectures focus on talent management, leadership, negotiations, organizational behavior, and human resource management. Aurelie Nielsen is also a fellow in the Department of Management. She specializes in organizational behavior, negotiations, and human resource management. Karen and Aurelie serve as co-conveners and head tutors for our online certificate course called Managing People in Teams. Additionally, Karen holds the position of the head tutor for our negotiations program, another online certificate course. If you have any question during the event for Karen and Aurelie, please post your questions in the Q&A box. We will get to those at the end of the event. And with that, I hand over to Karen and Aurelie. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Christina. Welcome, everyone. So today we're going to talk about what do you need to know to manage people and change in business today, but focusing on negotiation. And Carrie and I, we are deeply experienced with running seminars and workshops with all kinds of participants in different ways of life. And based on that, we sort of distilled what we learned over the past few years in this short presentation. And we would like to look at a few points that we think might be of interest for anybody who wants to be a better negotiator. And I think everyone needs to be a better negotiator. So the first point I appeal to everyone, it's why you negotiate. We all negotiate in our daily life, whether we want it or not or not, in our private life, in our work, in our career. But Karin, we talk more specifically about on which instance it may be crucial for us to improve our negotiation skill. The second point is coming from a famous myth about negotiation, and we're going to talk more about myth about negotiation. And the question is, are they born negotiators? And the answer is... No, otherwise we would not be doing the session, obviously, but it's more profoundly a mix of both, right? So obviously your personality trait may involve some of the negotiation skill, and we'll talk about that as well. But basically it's the developed competence. And we're going to give us hopefully today a few tools that will help you to do just that. So the third point is getting into the zone. We're talking about the bargaining zone here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as well. And what we can learn from a very famous type of negotiation, which is called a principle-based negotiation, and that is leading to the integrative strategy approach of leading negotiations. So very often, negotiation is not very popular or something people feel they want to avoid if Specifically, you may be conflict avoidant, for example, because it's perceived as a conflictual type of interaction where people don't feel very comfortable with and they might be a winner and a loser. However, what we would like to show you today is there is an alternative approach to that, and that's called the principle-based negotiation, where by adopting the integrative negotiation approach, you may want to change the dynamic of the negotiation and lead to a win-win situation rather than a win-lose situation. And then we will end up with some wrap-up and open the door to question. So 
just an introductory slide. We would have loved to make the session more interactive, but it's quite a lot of people today and we have some time in the wrap up in the question. We just want to illustrate there are so many situations where we are in negotiation. And when we are deep in this negotiation, we all wish we were a better negotiator. And it can be a full-time job, like um, being a diplomat, for example, or a, a merger and acquisition banker. But it can be also something we need today to, day, to negotiate who is going to choose the Netflix series that we're going to watch tonight, or what about the tenancy agreement or the next car we're going to buy. So there are so many situations where negotiation is extremely useful in our life. Thank you, Orly. So it's helpful today to think about how we consider our effectiveness as a negotiator in a realm of scenarios in which we might find ourselves, but looking more specifically at the nature of our negotiations and how we apply that in work and careers today, we'll look at a few notions here. Really, when we think about being a skillful negotiator, we can turn to theory to remind us, social exchange theory would, you know, remind us that, in fact, life and work is relational. When we are in relationships in our career world, we are engaging with the exchange of work effort for career opportunities, for rewards, for employment. And in that relationship, there is ongoing exchange over time. Social exchange theory would underpin then the employment relationship whereby the employee and the employer are in a position of ongoing repeated exchange. And in some ways, you can think about this as an ongoing negotiated relationship. We have at the start of an employment period, we have a contract. So there's some very clear legally binding foundations in this relationship. But once we move on in our work day to day, we find that there are opportunities to navigate complexities of the role. And we also know that employment contracts cannot be finitely specified for all considerations. They're very much forward looking. And so there's a lot that can be left undefined and needs to be uh, navigated and understood between the employer and the employee over time. So research has shown us that that is important to be able to apply the skills it takes to interpret what the expectations are of the role, to navigate complexities in the working world as we proceed each day in delivering the highest performance that we can, and to draw in the engagement and commitment of our workforce. So when, as managers, when you look at inspiring commitment and engagement in your workforce, there are a lot of opportunities where managers are negotiators, and you can read some interesting uh, authors in the literature who speak about the notion of manager as negotiator. In fact, not just as individuals navigating careers, but as managers and people leaders, the quality of people management is very much related to the quality and skill of the line manager. And so it's very important to think about one of those competence areas in management today is the quality of skillful negotiation. With so much changing and so much disruption in the work world, in the economy, in the workplace, and even in, within the scope of roles day to day in organizations today. It's crucial that managers can help employees to navigate that change over time. And so managers have an important role in shaping the work environment every day and in directing the work through these dynamic and changing conditions. So we can think about the purposes of negotiation as we apply them in work and context today. And here are a few ideas. So building on this notion of being relational, this ongoing exchange requires that over time, there is a balance in the exchange between the work effort of the employee uh, navigating their career and contributing high performance, developing their own potential, but also looking at what best aligns to the strategic priorities of the business. How is this particular talent valuable here in this particular employment or organizational context? That's where opportunities are created. And you'll find that yourselves and your employees are looking to discuss those opportunities with a forward-looking lens on their careers. And that's very central to talent management in organizations today. It's crucial that management understand the talent they have in the business, the purpose of the talent, and how they can support employees to develop that potential and move forward. So that may include career advancement to roles of more senior or deeper accountability and complexity. 
So these are where conversations become valuable that end up having negotiated elements to them, such as what opportunities lie ahead and how to proceed towards those in a career. And once it starts to formalize, you might find employees discussing tangible elements of promotion, relocations, perhaps international mobility, and also the compensation packages which accompany those. And this is, again, very, very reciprocal in terms of the work effort and the contribution the employee is making to the firm's priorities, but also how we reward, recognize, and retain talent in organizations today in a highly competitive labor market. So as you can imagine, this is an ongoing negotiation over time that becomes formal and less formal at various different elements as the employee continues to advance in their career and to deliver performance in the current context. What we're doing then essentially in our work and career lives and with the teams that we manage and the businesses you may be leading is establishing that relationship with individual employees in the workforce and with teams and the overall working context to support a positive and engaging climate. There's a lot of change that happens in workplace as well. And as we say, the employment contract cannot foresee every element of the work requirements that will be expected in the future. As we've seen in the global pandemic, businesses have had to shift and pivot dramatically in order to survive and thrive in the complex and dynamic changes that we've experienced. Having a trust-based relationship developed through effective negotiations can really help your employees to navigate that uncertainty and know that together with leadership, they'll make it through to the progress and the advancement needed for the business's success going forwards. So looking at how we navigate change Negotiation skills can be very helpful, both to persuade those involved of the need for change to manage any concerns they have about it and encourage voice and look for creative solutions, and also to uh, innovate as we navigate uncertainties and need new solutions. And finally, careers uh, and work today can be challenging, and it's very helpful for employees and managers to have negotiation skills, which help to address concerns, lack of resources, perhaps significant strain in the workplace. We've certainly seen that during the pandemic. And how can we support our employees to navigate those issues to avoid conflict or to address it when it arises? So common myth about negotiation, let's debug this. We have selected three myths to present you. The first one is the winner-loser myth. So in negotiation, Often people perceive that, as I mentioned, that's why they will tend to avoid it in the first place, that there is a winner-loser situation. And that is, of course, psychologically extremely painful, especially if you're in the loser situation, but also very bad generally for the relationship moving forward. Because even if you are the winner, you will find yourself in a situation where the other party we live perceived that he or she is a loser and therefore that creates resentment and bitterness in the relationship. So when, when you move forward, you will ever diminish quality of relationship. Will that be, let, let's say, a boss-employee uh, type of relationship or a supplier-buyer type of relationship? And generally, hurting the relationship is always seen as something that is not desirable in research and in negotiation. And actually one of the main principles of uh, Fisher and Uri, which is one of the books that Karin and I are basing ourselves some of our research, is citing the relationship as the number one criteria to see if one has conducted a good negotiation. So when you conduct a good negotiation, there are three basic principles that are suggested to take into account. If you want to sort of evaluate, was it a good negotiation or was it not a good negotiation? Difficult question, right? And that is, by the way, applicable in any context, not only your job career context. So it can also be private context. And the first one will be, was the process efficient? And that is not an, an, a, perhaps a bit of a counterintuitive as well, because the process is very important in negotiation. You may get to your outcome, but if it takes three years, five years, especially in courts, for example, context where it costs a lot of money for you to drag on a process, it might actually not be a good negotiation. 
So the second one is obviously the outcome. Did you achieve your target or not? And the last one, which actually is seen as the first one in terms of importance, is the relationship should be as good or better when you finish the negotiation than when you started. And that is really challenging. So no challenge yourself next time in you are in a negotiation position. Think about that and evaluate your negotiation and think, is the relationship now with my partner, brother, sister, job, boss, employee, after this negotiation or this tough discussion, which are also negotiation, is it no better or is at least as good than when it started? Because if the answer is no, the conclusion from Fisher and Uri that it was not a good negotiation. And that brings us back to the win-lose principle. So the second point is negotiation is an innate skill and not a developed competence. So that's the myth, right? So and that's a bit a depressing myth because if you start from there, then there is nothing to learn. Then you should as, as well not be in the session at all, right? So however, research suggests that while obviously some individual may have a natural talent for negotiation. And natural talent is to take with a pinch of salt, because what does that really mean? That is quite vague. However, looking at the big five tray, for example, if you are more disagreeable, for example, let's say that tray, you will obviously have a natural inclination to agree less rapidly or give in less rapidly, for example, in a, a tough discussion or tough situation, where obviously that will give you an advantage in this type of situation. So it's all very complex and narrow, but some trait of your personality will give you some advantage in some situation. And that depends a little bit which one. If you are in more type of mediation type of situation, being disagreeable, may that be a disadvantage in that type of situation. So again, that is something that wants us to think twice. Um, the last myth is good negotiators take a lot of risk and are gambling. So that is also one of the reasons why people will not be investing time in reading and participating in workshop on being a better negotiator because they think, oh, it's just about gambling and therefore it's about randomization and luck. All the opposite, in fact. So effective negotiation, it's nothing about reckless. It's behavioral science-based, actually. And a lot of the research we are uh, citing and taking in our course and workshop are based on behavioral scientists such as Kahneman and Tversky or Walton Mackersy, for example. It's also a lot about economic rules and laws, such as the Pareto Optimum, for example, which are also regulating a lot of the examples we are showing in a longer workshop that we hold. And finally, there's a lot of psychology as well, right? So you have game theory and so many other scientific uh, base, in fact, on which you can tap and learn and use to be a better negotiator. So I hope I demonstrate here that these three myths are really myths about negotiation. And there is so much you can do in terms of improving your skill as a negotiator by simply starting to participate in workshop session like here, and then hopefully looking further, looking at reading. And we are really open in the Q&A session if you have any questions for us on how to advise you to do that. Thank you, Orly. So as you have explained and opened the notion, we definitely understand from literature and from practice that negotiations is a developed competence, and it's so crucial to management and practice today. We see not only the significant complexities and disruptions that organizations have experienced in the global marketplace and in society, particularly with the recent pandemic, and also significant disruptive technologies, which while they advance our opportunities in business are also requiring significant and careful change management. But we also have the opportunities that lie ahead due to innovation and creativity. And so managing negotiations effectively helps organizations and their leadership innovate and extend the creative ability of the organization to look creatively for those opportunities and innovations which will be competitive going forward. So there's always a kind of risk mitigation, but also opportunity exploitation uh, side to negotiations. 
As we look then at how can we become a skillful negotiator, we work with managers and leaders really globally to consider how can that competence set be developed over time. And if you think about negotiations, there's very much a structured uh, formal setting to negotiations and contracting and the legal foundations required for that. But there's also the day-to-day micro interactions, which serve as terrific development opportunities for individuals who'd like to strengthen their negotiations competence. So we encourage you to continue to look at these events and opportunities which occur in day-to-day life and careers, which are an opportunity to continue to stretch your negotiation competence and look for ways to seek some feedback on your negotiations activities, see whether they've achieved the goals that you set out for yourself in that instance, or whether you and your team and others would like to improve on those outcomes in future negotiations. It's very much a developmental, developable skill and competence, but also crucial in management today, as Orly has explained. So when we think about then how to develop that competence, let's look at what structure underpins negotiations. And therefore, you can start to look at how you apply your effort and focus to any part of the negotiation which would influence the outcomes. So becoming a great negotiator, there's a lot to consider, but as an introduction in today's session, we'll we'll look first at the essentials and that's the bargaining zone. So as Orly has mentioned, the notion of the bargaining zone exists and underpins any negotiation. And that is where two or more parties have come together to undertake some kind of negotiated conversation to arrive at an agreement, which leaves them both better off than what they could have achieved without coming together in the negotiation. So ultimately, it's time intended to be well spent for a better outcome than you would have somewhere else or without the opportunity to negotiate. So it won't surprise you then that there's this notion of the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And that we think of as outside the negotiation. When you come into a negotiation, you're already thinking quite clearly about what your alternatives are outside the negotiation. So it might sound counterintuitive. We don't want to be distracted from our best efforts in the current negotiation. We're investing a lot of preparation, time, and focus to the negotiation. But part of that focus goes to understanding our best alternatives outside the negotiation. And maybe thinking about that, you have some examples from the real world, which makes sense. When you think about what that is, then it's really important to quantify and to specify and look more closely at what is that best alternative, also referred to as a botna. Because the stronger and clearer our understanding is of our alternatives external to the current negotiation, the more you understand where you are positionally in the current negotiation. And that's how we start to build a bargaining zone. So you can literally map out for yourself the idea of where you are relative to what your best alternatives are externally. And that is to consider at what point would you walk away from the current negotiation? At what point does it not meet at least the minimum value that you would expect it to for the effort and resources which you're investing in being in the current negotiation? Negotiations can be very time intense, labor intensive, be very extended over time. You're essentially investing in the relationship with the other party as you look towards particularly business to business contracting or business to client contracting as well. And the complexities of those contracts do take time to invest in levels of detail, research, clarifications and negotiations over time to be sure that that contract will be something that both or all parties can deliver on. So you want to have confidence in the eventual outcome and that's why we invest significant effort, not just to achieve an outcome that we think is a win, but as Lee mentions, that isn't a loss to the other party, but actually is a mutually agreed outcome that you can both, both or all parties will stand by over time and deliver on that contract once it's been agreed. So it's important to know what's outside your contracting and therefore why it's a win for you to stay in the current negotiation. So the reservation point is an important concept because your Knowledge of your alternatives externally helps you set your internal reservation point, which is the point at which if the current negotiation doesn't achieve at least that minimum value, you would then walk away and turn your attention to your best alternative. 
The target, on the other hand, is your aspirational point. So that would be at the upper end of the bargaining zone. And that would be what you aspire to achieve and the best possible outcome in the current negotiation. And there's research about how often do we actually achieve those targets. And of course, it's related to the behavior and the inputs of the other party. But there's a lot of terrific research on how we can apply the economic principle of Pareto optimality. So you can work towards optimizing your outcomes in the negotiation that are moving closer and closer to your target, your aspiration, but also potentially create expanded value. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. So what you're trying to do is really move beyond your reservation point to achieve more than your external alternative and hopefully reach your aspirational target. This is mapping out the bargaining zone for yourself and to understand where your opposing party may have set their aspirations, what you understand their uh, alternatives to be, and how you can therefore see the landscape in front of you both, in which you can find a range of different mutually agreed solutions, which would be acceptable to both parties, but may have different configurations. And that's where we look at options and bundling of various different proposals, which may have comparable value, but look differently in size and shape and complexity. So negotiations can take on quite a complex form, uh, but essentially you're always working within the notion of a bargaining zone. Where do I locate myself in the current negotiation relative to the alternatives outside? And where do I interpret and anticipate that my opposing party is also doing the same? So research and preparation about your own alternatives, your own aspirational uh, targets, what you think is reasonable and feasible to achieve in the current negotiation as well as what you anticipate and can learn about the other party's positions in the bargaining zone are very important to then being able to quite fluidly navigate those negotiations once they start. Preparation is a very significant element in research that shows it's associated with more successful outcomes. So we'll talk more about integrative negotiations, but what you're trying to do is move towards your target while also expanding opportunities for increased value for both parties. And to do that, it's crucial to be focusing on what might be the underlying interests of the other party, as well as knowing your own interests. If we very strictly and rigidly stick to positional bargaining, it can be very limiting and sometimes even arrive at an impasse where there is no negotiated agreement, despite there being a range of possible mutually agreeable outcomes. And that's really unfortunate when negotiators come together and there is the opportunity for one or more possibly mutually agreeable solutions, uh, but then there isn't an arrival at those agreements based on other factors in the negotiations. And strict and rigid positional bargaining without really understanding the underlying interests of the other party can be one of those factors leading to an impasse. Uh, which then forces all parties to defer to their best alternatives, which, while they may be a good alternative, were not originally foreseen as better than the current negotiation, hence coming to the current negotiation. This the next slide tells us a little bit more about the notion of the botna and how we use that in negotiations to influence the outcome of the negotiation. In research, we found that the best alternative to the negotiated agreement is a source of power in the negotiation. And it is associated with the final outcomes. So there's a positive relationship between how strong the alternatives are and what the eventual outcomes are in the current negotiation. So what's outside your negotiation has strategic value to the outcomes of your current negotiation. And we look at that as understanding why BOTNA is different than simply your reservation point in the current negotiation. So remember, reservation point is the point in the current negotiation at which the internal possible outcomes are, if the value of those reduces beyond a certain point, you would then defer to your alternative, recognizing the alternative offers you greater value. So the reservation point is what you would minimally want to achieve. It doesn't necessarily have to be identical to the external alternative, and in most cases in the real world is not. Uh, we can think of the sort of simplistic example of seeking a tenancy contract or purchasing a new vehicle. It may be that there are comparable opportunities, uh, but they aren't identical. So we need to understand 
what the characteristics are of value, what the attributes are that you're looking to achieve from the negotiation from a particular deal. Another example might be a job opportunity or career position or different postings. There are a number of different underlying interests for any of these negotiations, and they may have some comparable value, but not necessarily identical. And it would be unrealistic to assume that we can directly replace an external alternative in the same dimensions and characteristics. Lots of different circumstances uh, would be considered. For example, in a job offer, they might be located in different cities or have different uh, country bases or require different level of flexibility in working locations. So there's a lot of different issues to consider that are underlying an opportunity, but we do our best to make it comparable. So we would say then that your botna is strategic and your reservation price is tactical or your reservation point. It's what you're using as a tactic within the current negotiation, whereas the botna is strategic because it's influencing actually how you construct that bargaining zone. The notion of your alternative is where you start to think about in the current negotiation, where you would set your reservation point in the bargaining range. Again, that's the point at which if we don't meet that, at least within the current negotiation, it would be more valuable and logical for a rational negotiator uh, to step outside to turn to their alternative. So when we think about what we discuss, sometimes we may signal to the other party that we have alternatives. Having alternatives is a source of power in the negotiation. It shows the other party that the negotiator has choices available to them, and it can help you signal how strong those alternatives are. We wouldn't normally disclose full details of the other alternatives, but we might describe the quality of them, such as them being competitive, available now, or meeting your expectations across a number of issues or characteristics. The reservation price then, we, we wouldn't discuss in close detail normally. It's obvious that if you did disclose the reservation points, uh, it's already where the focus of the negotiation would shift to. So while we're trying to keep the focus of the negotiation at the upper end of the bargaining zone towards our aspirational targets, you keep in mind as a skillful negotiator at all times what your reservation points are. That's the threshold at which you would defer to your outside alternatives and end the current negotiation. As you think about that lower end of the bargaining zone, while you're in an extended negotiation, a skillful negotiator will continue to improve their external alternatives during the negotiation. And at first we might think that's significant effort and resources diverted away from the current negotiation, but you can see the rationale when you think about the botna informing the reservation price. If you can continue to improve your external alternatives during the current negotiation, you can start to raise the floor in the bargaining zone in terms of what you would be willing to accept for value from the current negotiation. So as you continue to move forward, the purpose of knowing your botna then is to provide some power and influence in the bargaining range. And that's to move closer and closer to your aspirational target or to hold the tension in the negotiation at the upper end of the bargaining zone. How can you do that? Well, you can think about how can you construct your alternatives while you're also investing in the current negotiation. Some of that might be, for example, if the negotiation is about a career opportunity to develop one or more other rival job offers while you're also interviewing or discussing career opportunities with a current organization in mind. Another example might be tenancy contracts or rental negotiations to look at other uh, potential candidates for the contract or to look at other properties uh, for consideration. And as you look at more and more competitive external alternatives, you strengthen the power of your negotiation in the current negotiation because of the strength of the botna. So again, research has shown us that the power of the botna is very important in the current negotiation. A very simplified way of looking at that is when there are no alternatives and alternatives have not been developed, in the current negotiation, the negotiator will feel much less power to influence the strength of their aspirations in the negotiating range and be more willing to accept uh, a lower, less valuable outcome uh, because there aren't alternatives of greater value. So the power of the botna is important to keep in mind as you think of 
where are you in the negotiating zone and how can you continue to influence your position towards uh, the higher end of your aspirations. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So the principal negotiation, as we introduce, are based on a few set of principles, and I'm going to go through them uh, quite rapidly, but we will give you indication how to look at this deeper if you're interested in the Q&A part of this session. So the idea is to look first at interest versus position. So... That is a very, very important um, concept, by the way, that is a strong difference between interest, which is why you're taking the decision and your position, which is the position you're taking in the negotiation. So for example, let's say you want to buy a souvenir in the bazaar, very, very basic type of negotiation. Your position will be the price at which you try to buy um, that piece and that you're voicing to the seller. And your interest is the reason why in the first place you want to buy that souvenir. Because if the seller start to negotiate with you based on position, you may quickly end up in an impasse because position are conflictual and they tend to be opposite. While what the seller could do that would be smarter, much smarter, in fact, than uh, negotiating with your basic position is trying to understand by, for example, asking diagnostic question, why in fact you want to buy that souvenir? Because if he has a better understanding of why you want to buy that piece, he will be able to manage the negotiation differently, perhaps orient you to another object that may be more suited to that purpose, but actually may be more expensive, or add a second object, and so on and so on. And even if he doesn't do that, by asking this question, he has created a relationship that will help him to the dynamics of the process anyway. So... Focusing on the interest behind why the person in front of you want to get that specific goal or say that he wants a specific or she wants that specific goal is much more important than focusing on the position. The second principle is look at the problem, not the people. So it's all about separating the issue from the people. So very often, especially in heated or difficult negotiation, emotion and or personality clash and the history of the relationship take over. And we tend to forget what was the issue, which is sometimes bending compared to actually where the negotiation or discussion is going, in fact, starting with. So the advice in that case is to separate the emotional reaction from the issue at hand and actually re-articulate the issue at hand to the other, back to the other, to make sure that you are separating both. So you may want to acknowledge the emotion, which is very important part of the process as well, and say, look, I can see you're upset here or the discussion is getting a bit heated, but the reason why we are having discussion is, and then we state very simply the problem and not mixing it with, um, or exaggerating, exacerbating it with emotion, history of the relationship and so on. The second or third principle is to even objective criteria on which you base and lead your negotiation. So you should always during the negotiation when you voice a price and you progress the negotiation, refer to measurable benchmark and standard to ensure that you are progressing based on the principle of fairness, but also communicating that to the other party, that you are in a fair negotiation and you're not trying to steal from the other or betray the other. So let's say you're in a tenancy agreement type of negotiation. It's very important to know the market and they've already done proper homework and know exactly what 
price are acceptable or not. So you are in a perfect position to be able to say, look, no, because this price I'm asking, you know, is not unreasonable. It's just based on this benchmark or this standout or this history price. The next principle is to focus on win-win solution, as you mentioned in the first place. So avoid to end in a win-lose situation. Even if it feels good at the moment for the winner, perhaps you will damage the relationship in the long term and you will create resentment that will backlash and fire back to you. And then the last principle that we want to talk about that are integrative part of the principal negotiation are focusing on increasing collaboration and communication. So it's mainly collaboration is really about, and that I think is crucial if one's only remember one thing from this set of principles that may be the most important, is not seeing the issue of the problem as a something that is between you and the other party, but as a common issue or common problem that you're both trying to solve together. And the together is really, really important. So it's really psychologically trying to pass from an opposite situation where you are in a conflictual mode to an integrative type of mode where you go from your side um, of the table to the other side of the table and looking together at putting your resource together, your brain together, your ID together, on solving that issue that is common, even if you have different angle, different interests and different position at stake. Okay, and finally, before we move to our uh, Q&A, just some reminders and some tips about how to look at moving from uh, positions to interests, moving away from issues and trying to understand underlying interests to create integrative value. So the, the idea with integrative negotiations is there's an opportunity to bring in more value to the current negotiation and create greater mutual gain for both parties. So this notion of Pareto optimality uh, and making improvements on various potential uh, negotiated outcomes is to expand the pie as you proceed in your negotiation by looking for greater and greater opportunities between the negotiators for mutual gain. So it's not about splitting the difference. And you'll see that some of the uh, scholars in this space, Chris Voss particularly, has a very interesting book, Never Split the Difference. You're still looking as a negotiator to create the greatest uh, potential outcome in the negotiation towards your uh, aspirational target at the upper end of the bargaining zone. But to get that target, to have a more realistic opportunity to achieve that target and perhaps even exceed that target, you can look at the opportunity to integrate. So be creative, very, very carefully look at where may be red lines in your negotiation, which can potentially risk an impasse or shutting down the conversation around uh, some opportunity. So try to understand what's underlying some of those concerns or issues or positions that the other party has and understand your own interests in your organization as well. By looking for those underlying interests, you can be much more creative in the solutions uh, that you both arrive at, which create mutual value and avoid an impasse in the negotiation. Opportunities to expand the pie, as we say in the literature and in practice, really is saying what other things might be of value that we perhaps haven't seen or assumed were out of the negotiation. You might be able to add ideas and interests into the negotiation, which can help you negotiate specific components because you've brought in more value from other components of the negotiation. So for example, that could be, you know, moving from a single contract for a single piece of work to a framework arrangement where your organization provides services to another over time. And that can give you flexibility that you can access greater value through a partnership over time, rather than looking at something limited to a single transaction. And therefore, the current parameters of the first negotiation can take that into account with the expectation for greater long-term value. It gives you more flexibility, but certainly you would underpin that with performance expectations and delivery standards to make sure that the value you're expecting in your contract uh, is deliverable by the other party and there's accountability by all parties. You can also look at a problem-solving approach 
rather than seeing the entire negotiation as having uh, some conflictual elements, when we come together to look at a win-win approach in negotiations, again, you're still looking for the important value that you and your organization are investing in coming to the table in the first instance. But you're also looking at, you know, there are complexities here that we perhaps don't know about the other party or positions or terms and contracts that they may already uh, be, be delivering on, which they need to take into account with regards to the new contract. So you're looking at how can we navigate constraints or apparent constraints in the current negotiation in order to move forward to a solution and an outcome that all parties will be more likely uh, to uphold in this contract going forward. So think through uh, from pollution problems to solution-focused approaches where you uh, move through to adapt innovative ideas and perhaps revisit the contract in stages to help both parties be successful as you go forward. Avoiding an impasse, Again, sometimes there may not be an initial and obvious overlap of your interests and your positions in the negotiation. So to avoid an impasse, because at first we don't see mutual uh, interests or mutual positions in the bargaining zone, if you bring in further interests and issues, there is an opportunity to look at other ways of coming together to meet the needs of both negotiators in the contract. So it may be that you really need to take a creative approach to consider other possible interests in order to have a deal at all, if it's not obvious from the start where the two parties overlap in the bargaining zone. So if you're learning from the early phase of bargaining that the one party's reservation point or their limits that stated in the negotiation really are not within a frame or a range that you're organization is willing to accept or not the parameters you've come to the table with, then creative solutions may be the only way indeed to come to a negotiated agreement. So thinking creatively and moving beyond positions to interests. And in doing that, one thing that's crucial in underlying our behavior and our competence and our actual professional um, reputation for negotiation is the relationship. As we started with the notion of social exchange, Careers and work today in organizations are underpinned by this notion of ongoing exchange. So building trust where there is possible opportunity for risk for both parties, but also the promise of future potential by having a negotiated outcome, uh, having come together for greater value than either party could achieve externally, does require that trust to develop the relationship for ongoing exchange. And although we do move from uh, organization to organization and careers now, businesses transform and pivot to uh, new service lines, new um, priorities, new strategic focus, we do know that these relationships are having a long-term influence on future negotiations. So while organizations may reinvent themselves and talent moves from business to business, the nature of negotiation is such that Individuals can build long-term relationships in their network, which are important for accessing social and human uh, capital as they move forward and deliver high performance in future jobs. So we look at the importance of developing that long-term relationship, even if you don't immediately see an opportunity for a repeated negotiation in future, by treating it as an opportunity to establish a relationship with that other business or the other party you may foster future opportunities for repeated negotiation, which can be valuable to you all. Let's now move to the Q&A and discussion and see uh, what questions you might have. Thanks, Karen and Aurelie. And thanks to you, the audience, for sharing so many questions. And we have a hard stop at 1 p.m., but we'll do our very best to address as many questions as possible. Uh, the first question is, from Francisco for Karen. Um, how can your advice on negotiation can be applied to competency-based interview questions? Have you got any examples? Oh, thank you. Yes, that's an excellent question. Competency-based interviewing is uh, crucial in the search for talent and the competitive nature of talent markets today. So organizations and their supervisors, line managers, recruiters, organizational representatives, in HR and leadership very much need to be focused on the competence and intentionally the talent that the individual brings with them, that individual 
human capital. So when looking at competence-based interviewing, what we're really trying to do as with negotiations is to look at, as rational negotiators, to look at evidence-based conversations, moving away from assumptions or speculations or any kind of stereotyping to understand what really are the fundamentals that are the individuals bringing to the table. So when we look at evidence-based uh, conversations in talent, which can be underpinning competence-based recruiting, we're looking at really that side of the conversation really to see what can the individual bring with them to the role, which would have material impact on their performance in directions which will serve the business's priority. We do see that talent bring a wide range and sometimes very deep expertise to the organization. It's a question of linking that competence directly to the business strategy and how it, their performance in that role then may serve the organization's priorities. Thank you. Next question for Aurelie, um, asked by Rania from the International Growth Center in London. What about win-lose negotiations? Not all negotiations are win-win and there's a power dynamic associated to some negotiations. How do you tackle that? This can be helped by looking about, for example, um, the importance of managing emotion in negotiation, for example, because when you are going towards a win-lose situation, very often um, emotion raised in negotiation because one uh, can feel that, obviously. And it can be, as I said, the main danger of this is not only the outcome, but um, the relationship. So one, one practical advice that one can give, for example, is thinking in advance, and that's part of the, the, the preparation that a negotiator uh, should be doing, about uh, the, the call it a face-saving offer. So you may want to run this scenario. It's a bit like playing chess if you play chess um, in your mind. So let's say if all goes well, you're on win-win, uh, but things don't go well, and you're right, very often, or often they don't go well, and you may end up in a win-lose. And let's say if you win and the other party lose, you know that the, the danger might be you're hurting the relationship. So how can you moderate that risk, right? Knowing that the risk is there is by thinking about what can you already insert in the negotiation that make, can make the, the party feel better? So one other practical advice that one will give is never gloat at the end of a negotiation. So even if you know you have won the negotiation, sometimes people feel, or oh, if the tendency, and it's human, obviously, to think, yeah, wow, I won the negotiation, and to show it to the other, not especially with words, but body language or face expression, and that adds to the resentment. So that's very important. So even when you feel the other party um, didn't negotiate very well or really lost a lot of opportunity to win some milestone, there also outcome, you should always be very complimentary on the other party negotiation style and strategy in a genuine way, of course, because there is always a way to complement and find genuine um, positive point in, in another party type of, of negotiation strategy. And instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry, you're losing, saying, oh, you, you really, uh, you negotiated very well, even if you know you win, because it's really acknowledging that you enjoyed the negotiation and try to moderate the resentment that the other will feel which may lead to the other party not wanting to negotiate with you anymore. And that may be in a professional situation, something that can hurt your reputation, first of all, because, you know, small world, no, everybody knows everybody's reputation. So if you get the reputation of a hardball negotiator or hurt relationship and create resentment in negotiation in people, this is not going to be extremely uh, well perceived by companies in the longer term because the relationship are very often paramount in any type of relationship, boss or supplier and so on. So yes, of course, you will win relation or negotiation or discussion and the other may feel that <laughs> in that instance that she has lost, but it's really important to moderate the risk, uh, the psychological risk on the other party. I hope you, hope you answered the question. Thank you, Christine, for that question. It was an excellent question, by the way. Thank you. And we have another question looking for some practical advice. Karen, Phil is asking, do you have any tips or advice 
or negotiating with friends or people you have existing relationships with? Any specifics you should look out for to try and do to get the outcome that you're looking for? Another excellent question. And what's interesting about negotiating in relationships that we already believe we know well is that we actually are making potentially some assumptions based on past behavior, as well as uh, some assumptions based on the qualities of the relationship. And what can be very positive is we may already have a healthy, established relationship with a strong foundation of trust. And it may have already a very clear long-term orientation, being that it's with individuals who are part of our lives and our social systems. So it's a really wonderful platform to build potentially mutually beneficial ongoing exchange. But sometimes we may make assumptions that uh, we can expect the other party to behave in a certain way uh, because they have a social relationship with us somehow. And in fact, as negotiators, we may not be fully informed uh, of the other party's interests and underlying positions. So I think one really important kind of watch out for when negotiating with individuals that we already know well socially is not to make the assumption that we already understand their interests very clearly, but still, as we would do in any best practice negotiation, seek to understand and do some information gathering. Think through uh, carefully your preparation for the negotiation rather than taking shortcuts because we think we know the individual or we, we know enough about their motivations or their priorities. Sometimes uh, we can learn a lot by just listening to the individual explaining their motivation to be in a negotiation with us um, and then help find innovative ways to create more mutual value. When you do integrative bargaining in any relationship, but also in those that are already socially held relationships, you can strengthen those relationships for future uh, health of the relationship and also ongoing repeated negotiation. So it's a great way to reinforce the good relationships we already have with friends and family, but it's an important a reminder to not move in too quickly to assumptions about where that negotiation or relationship is heading because individuals hold interests and we need to better understand what they are in order to create value for both parties and ensure that we build on that relationship rather than undermining the foundation we already have due to misunderstandings based on assumptions. And I guess a final point would be balancing the relational and the emotional, uh, because we have strong emotions about those that we uh, share life and work with, and friendships and social circles. It's also very important that while we can signal that we care about their outcomes as well, that we understand what are the facts that we're working with in the negotiation and try to take a very rational approach while balancing the relationship priorities as well. I hope that answers the question. Thank you. And to our final question, Kelly is asking, what are your favorite strategies for dealing with deadlock in commercial negotiations, especially in circumstances where the negotiators are using a competitive negotiation style? Well, we have this notion of going to the balcony. Mm. Uh, so when things do get difficult, it's important to pace oneself. You don't need to feel obligated to have an immediate response. And a cooling off period can be very, very helpful to all parties, as well as give you some space. You can buy a little time to do some research, gather more information, better understand what might have changed if something's pivoted in the course of this negotiation. If you feel surprised or on the back foot, you can gather a little breathing space, a little research space, a little time, and also signal that you won't be drawn into a rapid decision, which may undermine your ability to weigh out the pros and cons. Some negotiators, it's hard to imagine, but it does happen. Some negotiators in um, challenging negotiations actually lose sight of really what their minimum value is, the threshold at which they would walk away, that reservation point, and actually accept an outcome in the current negotiation, which is of less value than their best alternative. Hard to imagine, but it does happen. So if you find it's a difficult negotiation, try to create a bit of space to regather yourself, look at the facts, focus on the rational and uh, come back to the table. Thank you so much to Aurelie and Karen as well. Um, that was fascinating. And uh, yeah, everyone seemed to enjoy it. We had so many questions. Thanks for joining everyone.
We have lots more exciting events coming up this week at the festival. So do check out our program. Um, you can see the link on the slide here, lse.ac.uk forward slash festival. The next LSE online skills session will be held at the same time tomorrow where Dr. Katerina Glinyadaki will explore how to manage transition and turbulent times. So another exciting session, which I hope you can join. You can find out more about our LSE online courses via the link that's also on the slide and also in the chat box. Thank you so much for joining everyone and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.